This is the L3 Leadership Podcast, episode number 105. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 105 of the L3 Leadership Podcast. My name is Doug Smith, and I am the founder of L3 Leadership. We're a leadership development organization in the city of Pittsburgh devoted to helping you become the leader that you were created to be. If you're new to this podcast, we're committed to bringing you three episodes every single month. One episode will always be from our leadership breakfast or special events. One will be an interview that I do with a high-level leader, and then once a month you'll get a personal leadership lesson by me. If you've been with us for a while and listening to the podcast for a while, I'd really appreciate if you would hop on iTunes and leave a rating and review for us. It really helps us grow our audience, and it takes about two minutes, uh, so I'd really appreciate it if you would do that. This episode specifically comes to you from our special event series. We recently had Sean Amirati speak at our Pirates tailgating game, and it was phenomenal. But before I introduce Sean, I just want to thank our two sponsors uh, for this event. The first sponsor was the Pittsburgh Kids Foundation, and they are a phenomenal ministry led by my friends Brad and Beth Henderson. They do a ton of work in the city of Pittsburgh with youth ministries, churches. Uh, they do youth camps and do phenomenal work there. And they also do a ton of work down in Haiti, uh, and they take groups down to Haiti all the time on mission trips. They work with an orphanage down there, and are just doing some incredible work. So if you would like to check out what they're all about and support them, uh, you can go to pittsburghkidsfoundation.org and see what they're all about. Our other sponsor was Pop Invasion. They were our photographers for the night. They took some phenomenal pictures that are up on our Facebook page of the evening. But they're a creative agency led by my friend Marta Greca, and they can help you creatively pretty much any way that you need help. Uh, they do photography, videography, written content, web development, SEO, graphic design, and, and really anything else that you'll need. And so if you're interested in any of those things, check out popinvasion.com. And you'll be able to see all the great work that they do. So that being said, I want to jump right into the session with Sean. This is actually part two of Sean's talk. Uh, in this episode, you'll get to hear the question and answer session we had with Sean. If you go back to episode 104 of the L3 Leadership Podcast, you can listen to Sean's talk on his book, The Science of Growth. Just a little bit about Sean before we jump into the Q&A session. Sean is an entrepreneur turned venture capitalist and professor. Uh, Sean actually built and th sold three of his own companies and and actually one was acquired by LinkedIn as their first acquisition, which is pretty cool. Uh, he's also a professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon, and I actually interviewed him for the podcast on a, a new book that he wrote called The Science of Growth, which is a phenomenal book, and there will be links to the interviews with Sean, his talk, and his book, uh, all in the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 105, and you can get everything you need there as well as ways to connect with Sean. As I mentioned, this was our question and answer. The sound quality on the questions was a little poor, so I'm actually going to edit in and record the questions, so you'll get to hear me ask the questions, but uh, some phenomenal content here, so we'll just jump right into the Q&A, enjoy it, and I'll be back at the end with a few announcements. Sean, when starting a company, what do most people waste their time and effort on, and what do you suggest that they actually focus on to be most effective as they start their business? Yes, I think, I think basically while you're at these couple phases here, Everybody in a startup needs to do one of two jobs. They either need to get customers or deliver value to customers. Right? And this is actually a really challenging concept when you talk in, in MBA programs. So I do some stuff with like master's level students in engineering, and they get this right away, right? Because they're sort of wired to get this. Then you do this with MBAs. And what's happened in the last few years is entrepreneurship has gone from like the ugly redheaded stepchild of higher ed 
to like the cool thing that everybody wants to be. And so you have these people who like did strategy consulting or whatever while they were before going to business school. And they're like, I want to do a startup. It's like, great, what do you want to do? I want to do strategy. Or I want to do like uh, human resources. And like those are all really, really important when you're scaling rapidly. But at the early phase of a startup, so like when you're still at that concept, everybody in the company needs to be in either sales or delivery, right? And and getting customers may not literally mean carrying a bag and getting customers, right? It might mean buying ads, optimizing web pages, right? Or it might literally mean picking up a bag and going door to door and talking to customers. And delivering might not actually mean writing code, although in tech startups it usually does. It also could mean going to sit on site and helping the customers actually have a successful um, deployment or successful first interaction with your product. But at, at the end of the day, I think at that first, at that, that early day, early days of startup, everybody's either in sales or delivery, whether they call it that or not. Sean, is there a difference between scaling a nonprofit as opposed to scaling a for-profit? And if so, what are those differences? Yes, I think the question at a high, at a high level, right, is how do you scale nonprofits like you scale for-profit companies? Like, what are the similarities? What are the differences? Is that fair? And, and uh, so, so, I mean, uh, actually, I think where I met Doug, so we do this exec ed stuff, and actually Gina's here from Carnegie Bosch, so I don't know if she wants to be identified as that or not, but it's too late now, Gina. Um, so uh, they've done, um, they've done, they've, Carnegie Mellon Bosch Institute has actually generously donated a bunch of, Admissions to nonprofit folks to come and, and participate in the exec ed classes with us, which has actually been really fun because you have like the BMW executive and the Bosch executive and then the Light of Life executive, and it's kind of interesting to watch them all um, interact with each other. Um, but what I found interesting is I think there actually are more similarities than differences when you talk to them about the challenges that they have. I think the one thing that seems to be tricky in the nonprofit world, and this is said as somebody who, you know, loves nonprofits, wants to be supported, but has never vocationally spent time running or, or being in a nonprofit. But it feels to me like the one tension point is understanding what profit is is a much more nuanced conversation when talking about a nonprofit versus a for-profit, right? Because you tend to have sort of multiple definitions of that, right? You have like um, profit in the sense of like your donors, the people who sort of keep the lights on, which seem really important, right? You have profit in the sense of like whatever the mission of that organization is. So it sounds like for you that'd be helping people develop these kind of s- skills that they need, right? Um, and so it seems like understanding what the return is when calculating return on investment of these different initiatives becomes a more nuanced thing. But I think once you get that right, uh, the analogs become really strong. So um, uh, my wife and I now live in Florida, but um, when we lived up here in Pittsburgh, um, the church that we went to, we took them down to, to, we took their emerging leaders down to see Alpha Lab, which is this, how many of you are familiar with Alpha Lab? Okay, about half the room. So Alpha Lab is this really interesting, what's called an accelerator. So it's this, you have like 100 different startups apply. They narrow that down to like 20 that come in for interviews. And then they pick like six and they go through this three-month process where they basically do a lot of the stuff at that prerequisite, but in a sort of cohort basis. So there's six of them all going through it together. And the idea is that uh, they learn not only from people who come in and talk to them, but also from each other. 
and they, I think they all do better because they go through it in a group. And it's, it's done an amazing job. I think, so Noate, which many of you seem familiar with, Noate was one of the early companies that went through AlphaLab. We've had over 100 companies now go through AlphaLab, and it's been this magical program. But the emerging leaders came down from the church to, to spend the day at AlphaLab and sort of see how it works. And one of the pastors asked me afterwards, well, do you think you could, we could do this for our church? Like, could we have our emerging leaders basically go through an Alpha Lab-like cycle? And it was really, it was a really fun exercise because unlike Alpha Lab, where it's pretty clear, like we put $50,000 into the company and we hope to get, you know, a half million dollars back, right? It's a much more nuanced, like, what's a good return on your investment? What's a bad return on your investment? But a lot of the principles, once you sort of, clear that up, like, success looks like this, changing members' lives, whatever the case may be. Um, it, it's really fun. So I, I think a lot of the analogs hang together. To go back to your question, Claire, I think a lot of the, the analogies hang together. What I think you have to keep in mind is a, re- a much more concrete understanding about what return you're shooting for as you try to scale that up. So you had mentioned in your question, like, you're in three states now. I would say implicit in that I sort of took, you'd like to be in more than three states, Right. Um, but I doubt it's really that you want to be in more than three states. Right. It's probably more that you're touching so many people's lives today and you'd like to be touching so many, you know, an order of magnitude more. Right. And so that probably is the return you're looking for. Right. And so I think once you get those metrics right, then the, the business principles, same business principles, I think, are very, very applicable. Sean, how do you balance living for God as an entrepreneur and not letting greed consume you? And really, just how do you learn how to handle money with humility? Okay, so the question is, uh, how do you balance um, sort of the the a theological view of work while also being in a culture where there's a lot of greed? Is that what you're sort of driving at? Yeah. Um, so I actually think that probably feels harder to you than it than it than it probably is in in reality, right? So. Um, I think it's easy to it's easy to look and think like, oh wow, um, I bet there's a lot of tension where you know the guys that you're working with want you to do something and you don't want to do it um, because like it's not like the three of us who are partners are necessarily all go to the same church or anything like that. We don't, we don't, and in fact, you know, in one case, it's pretty openly not a Christian. Um, but what I would say is. He and I, we basically have many things that we view exactly the same way. Like integrity is really important to both of us, and there are certain things that he would do that he wouldn't do because it would violate integrity for him. And there's certain things that I won't do, and and so there's actually much less tension there than than you would suspect. Um, I would bet, just from the way you asked the question, there's, I think there's probably less tension than, than you would expect there. What I think is really important, though, is what I want to do is let people know, like, talk to people about things that I believe to be true, right? So the thing, like, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, but not necessarily connect in public forums like, like a classroom, the rest of that message. But I will say things... Like, I, I tell a story um, in one of my classes about a startup that I met in Lisbon, Portugal, that was trying to redesign um, the process that, that 
brides and grooms go through from getting engaged to getting married. And I always make a point when I do that, that when I tell this story, to say that for me, marriage is like one of the best decisions I ever made. And I'll say, like, and I'll, and I don't think I have any of you who've taken, who've taken that course, but I'll make a comment like, it's amazing to me that my wife is married to me, that she's the best thing that happened to me. Right? And, then, and then I will say something within, a, you know, 10 seconds of that, like, we met at church. Right? And then, but I won't say more than that in that setting. I'll just say, and we met at church. And I've had people come up to me afterwards and say, like, like alumni come back and say, like, hey, I'm going to church because I'm trying to find a spouse. Um, <laughs> Right, which I think is fine. Like whatever gets them in the door is totally fine. Or, or, um, or I had a guy who um, who had who was diagnosed with cancer that I did a lot of work with. Right, and I'd known him for years. And I said, like, hey, I'll be praying for you. Right, and and like that probably relative to like Lee, who's going to be speaking next month. That's probably a much softer form of evangelism than than what what he would be able to do. But like. Those little things make a make a a big difference, right? So what I try to do is like, you know, me and my guy, like me and my partners, we have we have things that we won't we won't give on, right? And they may be similar in some ways, they may be different in some ways. And then I try to just be honest and like when it's natural, you know, in, integrated into the stuff I'm talking about. Yeah, and so I think that's true of any professional thing that you pursue, whether it's entrepreneurship or just you know, whether it's a, a pirate or a penguin or, or, um, but, but I would say like one of the things when I, you know, most of the entrepreneurs I invest in aren't believers, right? They don't have the same, but, but when they are, like there are times when they are, I do, I do try to talk to them about generosity, right? Like I want to be known personally, like I would much rather be known as generous than rich, Right, um, you know, I'm neither of those right now. To be clear, like I don't want this. This comes off as like maybe more like I've been more successful than, than I am. But like, like I. But I think that's what you want. And what I would say is, when you can establish a, a, a value of generosity at the beginning of of that entrepreneurial journey, and I would imagine the same thing's true when Brad spends time with like athletes. If you can establish that value at the beginning of the journey, like it makes it easier when the journey works out really, really well. Sean, how do you rebound from failure? Yeah, so, so, perverse, so like, rebound from failure, to me, there's like two types of failure, right? There's failure, which is, you had a bad idea, you did all the right things, and you discovered it was a bad idea, right? Because there's a, there's a decent amount of, I, like, this is why I don't tell people we're going to go from 4% to 100%, right? There's a, there's a decent amount of, of entrepreneurship thing where you'll have things that you believe to be true that are just turn out not to be true. And I think it would be a real shame if someone walked away from that and said, okay, I'm not going to shoot for that kind of success anymore. So when entrepreneurs, I think, have an idea that turns out not to be a good one, but they do all the right things to figure that out, and they figure it out as efficiently as possible, Pardon me, as possible. You know, typically the last conversation at the end of that company when we're, um, you know, doing the last board meeting to, to wind the company down is like, whatever you start next, make sure you call us, right? Um, there's a different kind of failure, right, which is that you, you don't do the right things and so you squander an opportunity that, um, that you had. And to me, 
on that level, that's more the kind of, I think, cliche failure advice that people give all the time, like make that mistake once, not, not more than once. And I think all that is true. But I think we miss, I think we, because both those words are called failure, we, um, we sort of intermingle them and they're very, very different things, right? It's a completely different thing to do all the right things and learn that something's just not a great idea versus not do all the right things and take something that could be really valuable and, and have it, have it not work out. Sean, what are some best practices when it comes to scaling your business? Yeah. So, so I, I feel like, um, I feel like another problem at that early prototyping thing that we don't talk about nearly enough is, um, and since nobody knew what MVP was, this, the term may not resonate with you, but like MVP stands for minimally viable product. That's the idea. Um, and I think too many entrepreneurs have replaced the word viable with crappy, right? And so they, they think like, oh, I'm going to create this thing that's the minimum amount of viability that I can do to learn what I want. And they forget that actually what you need to do is you're looking to deliver the minimum amount of functionality that will deliver the maximum amount of validated learnings. And so um, so MVP, right, that's the, the sort of standard term for Lean Startup. We've actually at CMU rebranded that minimally awesome product and service because what I'm, I think what you're really trying to do is figure out what's the minimum amount of stuff you can do in an awesome way to deliver as much validated learning as possible, right? And so um, it may just turn out that like the small 3D printed prototypes may be flawed in certain ways that you actually aren't learning as much as you, as you think you are. Or maybe there's a step between that first one and full-scale production that you need to take into consideration. But, like, but I, think, I think we miss what we're optimizing for when we're designing these controlled experiments a lot of times because, because we sort of miss what, what you're actually shooting to do. Sean, when you're building your business, how can you avoid consistently raising money for your business and yet not making any money as a new venture? How do you actually balance that tension and how do you actually get to where you no longer need to raise money? Uh, not without pretty significant changes to the business model. Um, I think it's, I think what ends up typically happening when startups get into that place is they get on the treadmill of just raising more and more money, right? Because, um, and, and the market's changed a lot in the last six months, but, you know, a year ago, if the revenue chart was growing fast enough, you could pretty much continue to be sure that there was another check coming and then another check coming. And the problem is, like, when you keep scaling up these, these negative gross margin businesses, at some point they just hit the wall. And, it's a, and unfortunately, it's a really, it tends to be really ugly. So I'm sure somebody has, has made that iteration that you're talking about. I'm not familiar with it. The, the one, the closest thing I have seen is I've seen certain companies move from service businesses to product businesses but I think that's way harder than people appreciate. Right? I have lots and lots of friends running really successful service businesses that are trying to productize those services. And it, it honestly, to me, as an outsider, feels like it'd be easier to just start a product company than make that, than make that uh, transition. Sean, how do you make it as easy as possible for people to make referrals about your company? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things I encourage, whether tech or you know, an auto company or whatever, is like, is actually to spend a lot of time watching people use that. Like, there's just, you know, one of the, th- there's, a, there's a service for tech companies called usertesting.com, and you can pay them 
it's like 40 bucks a video to have someone who fits your target demographic do a series of tasks with your service. So like you actually can watch them, you know, you can say like, go to my site and sign up for this or, you know, download the application and it records their screen and they talk out loud while they're doing it. And we encourage a lot of our startups when they're at that phase where they're trying to figure this out to actually every week just pay five people who fit their demographic to, to do the videos, do the 15 minute videos. And the reason is not so much that between week one and week two, you'll see a lot of differences in the first five videos versus the second. But it's because it becomes really painful when every week you're seeing the same thing trip people up. And then you're reminding yourself that it's not just five people, right? It's the 10,000 people that came to your site this week that are having that problem. And so by like the third or fourth, fourth week, like everybody is just completely committed to not having week five look the same way. So that's one thing. The other thing I think that is underappreciated in startups, but is really common in, in large businesses is actually watching, going and talking to people who've stopped using the product, right? So I think we, we underappreciate the signal we can get from churned customers um, as a way to sort of improve that, that early interaction. Great. Thank you, Sean. Hey, thank question. you. What can we do to serve you? How can people connect with you? Yeah, I mean, so you guys uh, are welcome to follow me on all the sort of usual social channels. We have an email newsletter we send out. Um, and, you know, any feedback on the book would be great. Uh, and you know, it's really honored to be here with what you're putting together, Doug. Thanks. Thanks. So much, Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to our Q&A with Sean. I hope you got a lot out of the content. If you'd like to purchase a copy of Sean's book or connect with him, I've included links in the show notes on ways to do that, as well as the other episodes we've had with Sean. So you can find all of that at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 105. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, I would really appreciate if you would just take a few minutes uh, and leave a rating and review for us on iTunes. It really helps. If you want to stay up to date with what we're doing at L3 Leadership, you can sign up for our email list and check out our website at l3leadership.org and you'll be able to stay up with everything we're doing. We'd love to see you at a live event or in a mastermind group. And as always, I'd like to close with a quote and this one comes from Dr. Henry Cloud and he said this, he said, perseverance trumps smarts. I know a lot of smart people who don't accomplish much, but not too many non-persevering people who do. And I love that. I just want to encourage all of you, keep persevering. You never know where it'll lead you. Don't give up. Thanks for listening and being a part of L3 Leadership. My wife, Laura, and I appreciate you so much. And we will talk to you next episode. Mm -hmm.